Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our clean podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris as we continue our study. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's episode with Pastor Chris. had been fully gluttoned. If you've ever had a sleep coma, the entire bunch was there. It had been a miracle of miracles. 4,000 men had eaten to their complete capacity, plus the women, plus the children. And the disciples still had fish and bread left over. Now you would think, if a man could transform something out of nothing, and feed a multitude of hungry people, needy people, people who are in want, that they would love him, shower him with praise, idolize him, worship him, and elevate him to his correct status. However, Jesus's haters continued on. Haters are going to hate. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they continue to follow the Lord, badgering him after that miracle. And so Jesus and his disciples are walking. They're leaving that Sea of Galilee area, and they're walking to Caesarea, and he asks his disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples are throwing out answers, and then Jesus asks them point blank, who do you say that I am? And Peter being Peter, Peter being spontaneous and impulsive, Peter jumps up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looking at him says, Peter, which means stone, you answered correctly. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven has revealed that to you. And then he says, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus's promise, the church will be established. Jesus's promise, the church will endure. Jesus's promise, nothing can stop its purpose. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's our promise. You mean even in tough times, the church will stand? Absolutely. Even in persecution, the church will stand? Absolutely. There was a man named Saul of Tarsus who was like the Bible says, a stuck pig ready to die. He was a man causing havoc on the church. And the Christians were so terrified of him, they didn't want anything to do with him, his presence, or even his name. But Christ called that man Saul, called him to be an apostle, called him to be a bond slave, and set him off on a purpose. And that man went around and around and around, ultimately landing in a city named Corinth. And there he plants the church, and he tells us about this church, that heaven or that hell shall not prevail against. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to look at what the church is according to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and for today we're going to take verses 2 through 9. And we're going to actually look at, excuse me? Maybe. Maybe. No, we will. We will. If we go till 12, we'll, we'll finish. We'll at least get through 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and starting at verse 2, Paul writes, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech 
and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is the church? We started last week just posing the question what the church is. And we saw that the church is not a pastor or a priest or a pope. It's not the guy on the stage. That is not the church. Because what happens if that man morally fails? What happens to your faith? What happens to the church? What happens if that man goes off and and is with the Lord? What happens to your faith or the church? What happens if God relocates that man to the other side of the world? What happens to your faith and to your church? The church is not a singular person. It's not the voice box of God. The church too is not a property. It's not a property. When a Stephen is being cru- or stoned in Acts chapter 7, he goes on this long explanation about how God cannot dwell in a singular place. He goes from the Ark of the Covenant and then to David and Solomon's temple. And then he says, but you know, God cannot be confined to man-made properties man-made buildings how can the god of all creation be confined to a little box as if he was a genie or something god is not or the church is not a property second or thirdly the church is not programs and so we can't go church hopping and and church christian buffet eating oh i like their worship service i like this pastor's preaching i like their vbs i i like all these things that is not the church that creates no accountability in our walks. And then the church is not a party center or a network, a place where we can socially grow and and build our businesses together. Although all of those things can happen, that is not the primary function or purpose of the church. So what is the church? Verse 2, Paul gives us a very, very clear understanding of what the church or who the church really is to the church of God. Notice it's not the church of the Pope or the church of the pastor to God's church, which is at Corinth. Now, number one, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. What is the church? It is a person who has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now we spoke about that word sanctification last week. Do you remember what it means? To be set apart, to be separated. And the idea is for a holy purpose. And the picture is, think of the temple and the the priestly sacrificial system. They would bring in a holy lamb of God. And that holy lamb of God wasn't sacrificed in the fields. It wasn't sacrificed at a person's backyard. It was taken into the the temple and into the sacrificial center and into where the, the altar is. And then with specific tools and a specific practice, the animal is then slaughtered before God. Now those basins and knives and bowls and all the things have been sanctified or created for the purpose of solely serving God. That's the idea of sanctification. The root word, so sanctification, hagiazo, the plural form, or hagio is the word to be holy. So sanctification means to be set apart and to be made holy for the purpose of serving God. Now, how were we made holy? What does it say there in verse 2? It says we were sanctified in Christ Jesus. We were separated and placed into Christ himself. That's the church. It is a person 
who gathers corporately together because they have been set apart, sanctified in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does that then take place? Look at the next clause. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, how does this take place? Saints by calling. Now notice, the sanctified are also called what? Saints. Now the the root word saint is hagio, or holy. So we think of a saint as somebody with a robe and a halo, and maybe they're missing some of their head, and, you know, they got the little uh, friar tuck thing going on, and they're like this, and they're painted and hung up on the Sistine Chapel or something. That's the saint. Or they do some miraculous thing, and the Pope says, okay, after they die, we're going to elevate them to sainthood. Not true. A saint is a Christian. A saint is somebody who believes in God, who has been separated for God's holy purpose. So raise your hand if you're a Christian. If you say, I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Everybody with their hands up are saints. Every one of you belong to the sainthood. I'm St. Christopher. Nice to meet you. We all belong and are called saints. How? Is it because I got pretty brown eyes? Is it because you're a pretty young thing? Is it because you're capable? You're smart? You can do tremendous things for God? Is it because you're holy or better than the person down the street? You are a saint by what? Calling. The Greek word E-L-E-K-T-O-S. Electos. We get our English root word, election, or elect. So think of an election. We're in a democratic state. Think of an election. In every election, people cast their vote to choose who they want. And in every election, there are both winners and what? Losers. By default, there has to be somebody that wins, and therefore, others lose. That's what an election is. Now think of this calling. We are saints through election. The question is, who is the one that casts the vote? It's God. God is the one who casts the vote for you. There are winners and there aren't. And people cannot grasp that truth. But the Bible speaks of election and God voting for some. It's as clear as day. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And this is the church. And this is how you are called to be a saint. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, sanctification, you are set apart for God's holy purpose, right? Listen to the rest of verse 4. Why did God choose you in Christ before the foundation of the world? What does verse 4 say? That we would be holy. The root word hagio, same as saint, same as sanctification. That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why were you adopted? Because you're funny, smart, good-looking, talented. Why? Because according to the kind intention of the Father's will, our response to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now go to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. This is how we are called to be saints. And we know that God, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are, there's that word election, who are elected according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, and then we'll get back to our central text. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a very, very famous passage. We'll start at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So when someone is dead, can they do anything? You were dead, past tense. This is who you were, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our own flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surprising riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, what's the purpose of your sanctification? To do what? To glorify God. You were created for that purpose. Now, look at verse 10. Why did God choose you, and why have you been saved by his grace? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's the calling of God. That's how we became saints. It's not because of me trying to uh, adhere to the law. It's not me because I'm out here thinking I'm a good person or I walk elderly people across the street or I buy Girl Scout cookies. None of that saves me. None of that calls me a saint. None of that gets me into heaven. It's God's call from before the foundations of the earth. So Paul says back to our text, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So when God calls, what is the response of the saints? Here is our part. With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So this phrase, call on the name of the Lord, what does that mean? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What is it? To pray, to rely, to submit, to proclaim his word, to proclaim his deeds, his greatness. What else? All of those are right, by the way. Don't think you're wrong. What else? To call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? To use his name with authority? Protection? Protection? 
So we have to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? First of all, who can call on the name of the Lord? Those whom God called. So God FaceTimes us, and then we have to accept. We say, boom, okay. And then we call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Let's see. Turn to your Bibles all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And Brian and Brandy were going through Genesis, so I'm sure they're aware. Genesis chapter 4, and starting at verse 17. Now we're going to string some things together, just follow kind of the, the, the train of thought here. Genesis 4, 17. Cain, remember Cain, what did he do? He killed Abel. Why did he kill Abel? Because he was Abel. There you go, verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So this guy built a city and called on the name of his own son and named it after the city. Verse 20 through 22. This is the line now of Cain. Ada gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Verse 21. His brother was named Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Verse 22. As for Zilhah, she gave birth to Tubal-Cain and the forger of all implements of bronze and iron and the sister of Tubal-Cain and Namah. So you had this guy, Cain, evil guy, the very first murderer in the world, and he has family, and all of their family are natural in the sense that there's no spirituality at all. And so his son builds a city. Their offspring are cattle or shepherds, and they do cattle. Another one goes into the music industry, and then another group of people, they're iron workers. And they go, and they're forgers of metal. And that's who there are. This is their identity. Now you have another person come on the scene, and he's of a different line. Still from Adam and Eve, we see him in verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me an another offering, offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed Abel. Verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And they, listen to the rest of verse 26. First time it's mentioned in the Bible. Then men, and the word men is not there, it's in italics. Then they, or then them, began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in, in Genesis 4, we have a separation between this natural family line and then the family line that would have Christ come through the blessed holy line. And Seth is a part of that line. What's the difference between Seth's line and the others? Seth's family calls on the name of the Lord. We're going to have to find out what that means. We then see in Genesis chapter 5, after they call on the name of the Lord, there's the genealogy. And it goes from Adam to Noah. And you remember when we're going through Jesus in the Old Testament, we took the names of every one of those in the genealogy, and then we defined what those names were. And there in Genesis 5, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 4, they began calling on the name of the Lord. In Genesis 5, we have the gospel. What's the gospel? Take the names from Noah to Adam, and you have this message. Man was appointed mortal and sorrowful. The blessed God came down teaching, and through his death, the despairing have peace. And because Adam is man and Noah is peace, the gospel is written in their names. You have in chapter 4, men calling on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5, the gospel being delivered. And then in chapter 6, what takes place? You know the story well. We've heard it, we heard it in Sunday school a trillion times. God judges the world. The water recedes. The ark is now on dry land. Noah comes out and he does something very interesting. He creates a pillar and then he begins to worship the Lord. There's no law. There's no Bible. There's no church. There's no temple. There's no synagogue. It's Noah and a couple of his family members. Where did he learn this from? 
where did Noah learn this from? Well, we would assume from Seth, and because Noah came from that line. We would assume that, but we can't be dogmatic for sure. Now go to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 is another very big moment in redemptive history. Genesis 12, 15, 17 are all huge because it deals with Abraham and his what? Covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. God is going to give them a people. God is going to give them a place and that the promised Messiah is going to come through his line. Now, Abraham is blown away by this. And listen to what Abraham does. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. Bethel means the house of God and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Ai means destruction. So he's in between, much like the Christian, destruction and the presence of God. And so he's sojourning, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Where did Abraham learn this from? It had to have been passed down. There can be no other explanation. Now look at one last passage, Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26 Verse 24, Abraham's dead, and who replaces Abraham? His son, Isaac. Then he, Isaac, went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Verse 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Where did Isaac learn to assault, assault, erect an altar? There we go. Erect an assault. It was just weird. Erect an altar and then call on the name of the Lord. Where did Isaac learn that from? From daddy. So we have a picture here where men had an interaction with God and it manifested itself out into public worship. As we go through the Bible, we'll see that to call on the name of the Lord ultimately means to be saved and that then manifests itself out into corporate and public worship. Now look at the New Testament. When was the church created, actually founded and established? Do you remember? There he goes, Acts 2, and it was a specific feast. It was a specific feast. What was it? The feast of? Nope. It's 50 days after Passover. So Pentecost. They're in this festival of Pentecost and Peter is preaching the gospel. And notice what he says in in Acts 2 and verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now we have calling on the name of the Lord, dealing with our salvation and our relationship to God. So when someone is saved, what then do they do? What is the process? What is the next step? Well, if you want to know, look at what the early church did. Now go to chapter 2 and verse 41 and verse 42. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were about 3,000 souls that were added. That's their salvation. They are now saints. They've called on the name of the Lord. Now, how does that manifest itself? Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word of God, and to fellowship, koinonia, that's doing life together, to breaking of bread, that's the rite of communion, and to prayer. So when we look at the Old Testament, And we look at the New Testament. Calling on the name of the Lord is a personal, intimate relationship with God that manifests itself outwardly. 
It is a public gathering and a corporate worship before the Lord. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, going back to our text. We are called by God, elected, called saints. And our response then is what? Look at the text. Who with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So we get saved and then we're continuing on together in corporate worship, corporate worship with one another. And then Paul says this, and this is what ties together all of Corinthians because he's going to talk about their disunity and their lack of trust and the fact that there's cliques in the church. And he's making a point that we have been called by God and that we are one together. Listen to what he says. Who call on the name of their the Lord, their Lord and ours. What is Paul doing here when he says that? What do you think Paul is doing? What's his intention behind this? He's showing that the church has to be and in fact theologically is unified positionally we are unified therefore practically we must therefore be together as well it has to be two things are assumed with this number one our relationship to jesus our relationship to jesus what does verse two say again their what their what their lord and ours so that now tells you and I that our relationship with Jesus is very distinct. If Jesus is a good shepherd, what does that make us? The, the sheep of the flock. If Jesus is, called, is a king, what is our relationship by default to him? Subjects, right? If Jesus is Lord, what is our by default relationship to him? Bond slaves. That's a term Paul uses throughout the New Testament. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, bond slave. Paul, called an apostle, bond slave of Jesus Christ. One out of every five people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Four out of every five were free men, but you had 20% who were slaves. And within that slave system in the Roman Empire, you can earn your way to freedom. And after a set amount of time, you are then called a free man. And you, the, sh the shackles have been taken off and you have been set free. You can go into the world and you can go build your own kingdom and build your own empire and make your name great. Have at it. You are now free to do what you want. But a bond slave was somebody who looked at the world and says, ah, hard pass. There's nothing out there for me. Building my name ultimately is just going to come to nothing. So I'm going to stay with the Lord I'm going to stay in his estate. I'm going to build his kingdom. I'm going to make his name great because being with the Lord is better than being out there in the world. And so a bond slave willingly submits their liberty to their Lord's will and desire. And that is who we are when we call Jesus Lord. He is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. It's either all in or all out. You are either a slave, which means you take the orders and you're the ones that has to say, when Jesus says, jump, how high? Or you're not. So we are called slaves of Christ. Number two, what is our relationship with each other? If you call Jesus Lord and I call Jesus Lord, what are we then together? Family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. There's one body, there's one faith, there's one baptism. We are all one. And that's Paul's point. God elected you just like he elected me. Not on the basis of your gender or your skin or whether you're free or you're a slave, smart or dumb, sexy or eh, not so much. None of that matters. God called you. We are in the same position by the same calling. Therefore, we must be unified. That is what it means to be a saint. Now, here's the benefits of sainthood, verses 4 through 9. And this won't be too long. Verses 4 through 9, the benefits, or 3 through 9, of being a saint. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. You can't have peace without God's grace, and you can't have God's grace without having peace with God. And so it's this benefit of the believer, grace and peace from God, which manifests itself, verse 4, in the pres- in the past, the present, and the future. And this is our blessing, past, present, future. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So Paul now tells us the benefits of being a saint, one who is called a Christian, or one who belongs in the church of Jesus Christ. And here we see an enrichment on the part of the Lord in the life of the Corinthian church and in your life. Now, these are past tense promises. If you see verse uh, 5, the word enriched, you were, past tense, enriched, and Christ was confirmed in you, past tense. But in Greek, it's a special tense called aorist, which means it happened once in the past and forever remains that way. So when Paul says you were enriched in him, he's not saying that happened one time at your salvation and now you're off on your own. It's the picture of being under a waterfall. And that water is continually washing you, enriching you, pouring over you. It's a non-stop event. You are presently, because of what happened in the past, being enriched by the Lord and being confirmed by him. That means that you actually belong. There's nothing worse than being a stepchild in a home that nobody wants you in. That, you know, redheaded stepchild that, you know, everybody's just like, well, get away. I can't wait till you're 18. That's not happening with God. That is not happening with our Lord. Everything is past tense. And what does that mean? You were enriched. It means to be set at the height or the top of an, is it opulent? Opulent. Opulent scale. There we go. And opulent means what? If I could say it right. What does it mean? It means to be uber wealthy. Now, what Paul is saying is, at your conversion, you became uber wealthy in him. You are at the very top of the tax bracket. You went from a zero to a hero. You went from an ain't to a saint, just like that. You became very rich. Look at Romans Chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leaving to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, what does that make us, verse 17? Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. What is the promise of sainthood? You have been made heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. Now, there was a group that gathered together and they asked Jesus a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And so he's, do you have a coin? And they give him a coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. He flips the coin back and says, then give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. Now, two questions. Whose image is on you? You were made in the image of God. So give to God what is God's. Our responsibility is to give God everything. The 
then we ask the question, well, if God makes us heir of all things, what does God then own? Everything. And you're an heir to that. It's called will and testament. Because it's a will and testament. This is your retirement plan. Uber, uber wealthy. Those who have been poor in this world will be very rich in the next, in Christ. And so we've been made to be uber rich and uber wealthy. Now verse 7, here's the present blessing of being a saint. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because verse 6, they were confirmed. Verse 7, they had spiritual gifts. Now, they were given spiritual gifts because they had whom? God's Holy Spirit. Here's the second benefit and blessing of sainthood. And this is a present day blessing. We possess God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is so powerful because in the Old Testament, this was not the case. This happens because of the new covenant. Remember the three groups of people in the Old Testament that had the Holy Spirit? Who were they? The prophets, the priests, and the kings. And before the kings, what was the other group of people? Judges. Those offices possessed God's spirit. Now, it wasn't possessing the spirit for salvation. It was possessing the spirit to empower them to fulfill their office. So if they were a king of Israel and God's nation is Israel, the the king had God's spirit so that they had the capacity to honor God in their ruling and their reigning. So the Holy Spirit was given to these people for their office. What happened, though, when they quit? Or there's another king or there's another priest. What would take place? The spirit of God would leave. The spirit of God would leave them. In, uh, I think it's first Samuel 16. I could read it to you. First Samuel 16, verse 14 and 15. David is anointed king by Saul. He takes the horn of oil, verse 13, and he pours it over him and he anoints him as king. And then verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Who was Saul? The first king of Israel. David is now anointed as king of Israel. God removes the spirit from Saul and he puts it upon David. We see this again in the New Testament. Look at John chapter 10. I'm sorry, John 11. In John chapter 11, verse 47. Now, these are the chief priests, and they're conspiring to kill Jesus. This is before the the, uh, death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 47, John 11. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So would he or would he not have God's Holy Spirit? But it's in the New Testament. How can it be? Because it's not the new covenant yet, right? We're still in the old ways. So Caiaphas was the high priest that year and said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. How did he prophesy? Under the spirit that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not only for the nation, but in order that he might gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. He was the chief priest. He prophesied under the power of the spirit. Meanwhile, he wanted to kill the son of God. Now we come to the new covenant and every believer has God's spirit. 
only this spirit doesn't leave you. First, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 13 says, the spirit of God seals you for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is with you forever and ever. Jesus says in John 14 that he is the one who comes alongside. He is our helper. And the word is parakletos or kletos. And para means to come alongside. So if you think of a, a, a parallel lines, they're running alongside one another. Or a parachute. You have a chute strapped to your back. And kletos is counselor or comforter. The Holy Spirit to us is one who is attached to our back, actually inside of us, who comforts us and ministers to us in our time of need. He prays when we don't know how to pray. He empowers and speaks when we don't know the words to speak. And ultimately, he empowers us so that we can serve the purpose of God. What's the point of sanctification? You're a tool in whose hand? God's hand. The purpose of you being saved is so God can use you for good works to bring glory to his name. Now, Paul says in verse seven that you are not lacking in any gift. And the word is charismatics. And it's speaking of the power or the workings of God's Holy Spirit. He says to them, you are not lacking in the powerful movings and giftings of God's spirit. So what are the gifts of the spirit? Anybody know? So those are the fruits of the spirit, and that's very good. But what is the giftings of the Holy Spirit? Really quickly, and we'll close, because I can see some of us getting tired. Flip to uh, Romans chapter 12 verse 3 through 8. So we have a couple lists in the New Testament, and you can break those lists into three major components. Sign gifts, and then you have speaking gifts, and then you have serving gifts. If you are uh, uh, somebody who likes to outline, that's how I would do it. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Notice where does that faith come from? God allots it. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function. Imagine if everyone was a kidney, or a liver, or a heart. We'd be very strong in one area and the rest of the body would be dying. We are all members of one body. For just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Number one. Here's a speaking gift, prophecy. What does it mean, prophecy? Some people think it only means to speak about the future. And that can be, but mostly it's forthtelling. It's speaking on behalf of God about what God has already done. But it can have foretelling, where God gives unction under the Spirit to foresee or forecast something that has not happened. So one of the speaking gifts is the gift of prophecy. Then we go on further, according to the proportion of faith. Verse 7, if service in his serving, so service is the root word deacon, deaconess, if you've heard of those. And it's where we get our term minister, to think of someone who is a servant. And this just means someone who meets practical needs. Oh, your, your lawnmower's broken and your grass is up to your knees. Let me go and take care of that. Oh, the light bulb's out. Let me go and, and fix that. This idea is meeting practical needs through practical application. Verse 7c, uh, or he who teaches in his teaching. Here's another speaking gift, the gift of teaching. And this is a gift given to individuals to teach the word of God. Not everybody has the gift of teaching, and that's okay. Remember, the church is not a preacher. The preacher is not above everybody else. We're all one in 
Christ. So we have teaching. We go on uh, verse 8. And he who exhorts in his exhortation. That is to, uh, to call, to demand on behalf of God. Or to give teaching or a proper um, direction. And he who gives with liberty. That is to be over the top in generosity. And he who leads. This is one, it's called to steer the ship. So the idea is a captain. God gives those in the church to be leaders or captains to steer the church in the right directions. He goes on, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is to be over the top, sympathetic and gracious to one another, particularly in times of need in times of need, to be merciful to one another. Now, really quickly, flip to 1 Corinthians 12, and then we'll finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. Now, we get another list. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God. See how Paul is saying it's all about unity, 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 who works all things in all persons. But to each one is giving a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now, this is a person who really understands how life works. They can see the world around them. They see how God has ordained things, and they just have a real supernatural wisdom about how they see, perceive, and live life. Daniel was a young man who had an incredible amount of wisdom for his age. For sure, he had the gift of wisdom. It's a supernatural gift on behalf of God's spirit. Next, another to the word of knowledge. These are people who have the gift of going very deep into the things in mind of God. You ever talk to those people who they're, they almost are esoteric, spacey, like the thing, the concepts they talk about are so deep and profound and you just got to chew on them. These are typically the people who have been given by God's spirit this wisdom of knowledge or the spirit of knowledge, just the supernatural ability to understand. To another, faith. This is to not be shaken during times of trial. To another, the gift of healings. This is to supernaturally heal people. Why don't we see this today? And if we do, then why don't we see it often? You're going to have to wait till we get to chapter 12. Then we see uh, to another, verse 10, affecting of miracles. This again is to do the supernatural, to break the bounds of natural science. And to another, prophecy, to speak on behalf of God. And to another, distinguishing of spirits. These, I would say, are the protectors of the church. These are the ones who the air raid sirens go off in their head when they hear something that's not right. They hear some theology or they hear a teaching or a call to do something and they're like, that's not right. Something's up with that. There's a discernment there. You know, th- this person, they, something is just off with them. And these are really like the gatekeepers of the church in this, in that sense, because these people keep others accountable. And so that's a very good thing. And then he goes on and he says, to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. So God's spirit gives to some the speaking of tongues. That is to say, they can pray or um, can uh, exhort in a language that they have not studied. I have been in, in prayer meetings where somebody is speaking in a language and another person says, how in the world do you know ancient Chinese? How in the world do you know aristocratic French? How do you know these things? And it's them praying and, and prophesying under the power of God's spirit. Uh, me and Brian were talking about how we heard of a testimony of a man preaching the gospel in English and people responding in Spanish. They heard the word of God supernaturally. Now, when you speak in tongues, you often don't know what you say. 
It sounds like gibberish. You don't know the language. You don't understand. But you do know that God is ministering during that time. So how do we know what is being said? You have an interpreter. And that's another gift of God's spirit. Someone who is there who says, I don't understand the heavenly language. I don't understand French. I don't understand, you know, ancient Chinese. But I do understand what they're praying in right now. And this is thus says the Lord. And they go and they interpret what the mind of the spirit is doing. Now you can see these are varying gifts from all all walks of life. And when we come together, the church can be, be vibrant and powerful. So Paul says, you have past benefits, you've been made uber rich, and you have a a fantastic retirement plan. Number two, presently, you have God's spirit in you to minister to you, to counsel you, and empower you to serve other people. And then we're not going to touch this, but you were right. Verse nine, or verse eight and nine, the future. Uh, who will also confirm you, that's present tense, to the end. That means forever you will be confirmed. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were elected, called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what's the future benefit? You will be confirmed in Christ. When he rules and reigns and he judges us, we will be found worthy. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we are all going to be before the judgment seat of Christ. And the word judgment is bima. Does anybody know what the bima is? Yeah, so so in Corinth, they had a really big athletic games called the Isthmian Games. It was the second largest athletic event in the world. The only one that was bigger was called the Olympiad. And so in the Olympiad or in the Isthmian Games, the winners, those who ran the race well, and they would get a crown, but it was a perishable crown. That crown of of olive branches would, would wilt away. But at that place where they received the crown and they got the gold or they got the silver or they got the bronze, that's the Bema Seat. That's the place where the Olympians, the winners, go and receive their awards. What Paul is saying is the benefit of sainthood is that you are confirmed in Christ and you will be blessed in that day. It's our reward ceremony. And so what Paul is saying is you were essentially arranged to be married to Christ. We are his body. Christ is the head. You were arranged from before the foundations of the earth. And the arrangement comes with a great benefit package. You're forgiven of sin. You're made very rich. You have God's Holy Spirit permanently. And you will be confirmed and given gifts for all eternity. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time that we can just get into your word. Um, It is just so rich and powerful and and the depth and breadth of it lord god is is overwhelming at times to think that we were dead in our sins and our trespass and you've called us unto life that even while we were yet sinners christ died for us and that we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us And so, Lord God, as your bride, we are called to submit before you, to glorify you, as bond slaves, to serve you in obedience, as subjects, to honor the king and build the kingdom, as sheep, to be faithful to his voice and to lay down in green pastures. Father, I just pray that we would be found faithful I pray, God, that this little church, members of one body, that we would function well, that every one of us is gifted and has been glorified in Christ. Every member is a minister, and every minister has the responsibility to serve one another. And so, God, I just pray for the, the heart and the kidneys and the hands and the feet and the, the, the skin and the skeletal system and all the different structures within this little local assembly. 
I pray, God, that we can be mighty. That we can have a strong body, a fit body, a body that can take punishment and continue to move forward. So, Father, would you bless this place and would you bless our walk as we seek to bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.